1: Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick
2: real love is calling listen opens up your eyes If you've had a wonderful earthly dad, that's great because then this can help you to understand the love of your father in heaven. If you didn't have a good earthly dad, you have one who is good and perfect in every way in heaven who loves you. You might have to have a fresh perspective of what the term father means. And that's okay, but seek the one who is perfect and loving and will never disappoint you and will never abandon you and will never hurt you and will never forsake you because that's our Father in heaven, and He is a Father to the fatherless.
1: In the message today, Pastor Gary talks about our relationship with others coupled with our relationship with the Lord. So many times in today's world, people are raised with a skewed version of what a father looks like. It's easy to doubt our faith in others when our examples have been so inconsistent. Thankfully, your father in heaven is perfect and protective and loving in every way. If you ever have doubts about what a father should be, turn to Jesus and know that all things are made perfect through him. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at chapter 6. We left off at the end of chapter 5, where Paul ended the chapter talking about how we have the message of reconciliation. How God was reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. That we, because of our sin nature, are inherently estranged from God. But because of God's love toward us, he gives his son Jesus, who dies on a cross... And that act of love is what bridged the gap and closed our estrangement and allowed us to be reconciled to God. And then at the end of chapter 5, Paul says, and now you've been entrusted with this message of reconciliation, that wherever you go and whatever you do, it should communicate this wonderful message that your life has been transformed by the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ and that you, having experienced this reconciliation yourself, now want to offer it and extend it to everybody else, that they would know the same wonderful atonement that has bridged that estrangement as much as you have. And so he says, you have been given this message of reconciliation. And then at the end of chapter 5, he calls us Christ's ambassadors. Now, to be an ambassador is to be a representative of one kingdom to another foreign kingdom. And when you think about it, you know, we're living in a foreign kingdom. This earth is not our home. We're only passing through. If you're a Christian, your citizenship is ultimately in heaven. That is where your ultimate destination lies. That is where your ultimate citizenship lies, is in heaven, not on earth. So in the meantime, we are representatives of the King, of the Lord, in a foreign kingdom. So we are ambassadors representing him in this world. And so that's where chapter 5 ended, and we're going to begin now chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul continues, he says, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. That's what verse 1 says. Now, NIV there says, We urge you, King James says, We plead with you not to receive God's grace in vain. How is it possible to receive God's grace in vain? How is it possible that this wonderful message of grace, the acronym GRACE stands for God's riches at Christ's expense, that we would understand what God has done for us, His love for us, He's bestowed upon us His grace, His love, His favor, His forgiveness, His mercy, even though we didn't deserve it or earn it, that's God's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. How is it possible? we could receive that actually in vain well paul's going to develop here in chapter six this premise that you and i can receive this wonderful message of god's grace and it be in vain or be useless or worthless if we hear it but we don't live it out If, in fact, we become conformed to the world instead of influencers of the world. If we allow the world's influence to shape us instead of us molding the world by the grace that we have received. In other words, if we start living compromised lives, lives of sin, lives that look more like the world in terms of worldliness rather than godliness. Well, then we've received the message of grace in vain. And so he's going to build that here in chapter 6. And he goes on in verse 2 by saying, For he says... And he quotes scripture from Isaiah. In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. He says, I tell you now, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. That's why now is the day of his favor. Now is the day of salvation. We have an opportunity to get right with God and don't delay. Accept him now. Respond to that message of grace now. God has done this in our day, in our time. Don't delay, he says. And then he adds here in verse 3, he says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. It is possible to discredit In Paul's case, his ministry, in my case, because I'm in full-time ministry, it's possible to discredit the ministry. It is possible to discredit your testimony, in other words. He says here, but we've put no stumbling block in anyone's path. Now, the New King James says we've put no offense in anyone's path. The ESV says we've put no obstacle in anyone's path. And then again here in the NIV, it says we've put no stumbling block in anyone's path. Your life will either be a stumbling block or a stepping stone for someone else There's no gray demilitarized zone on that It's not like you will be, you know, somewhere in the middle You will either be a stumbling block In other words, the life that you live if it's inconsistent And this is kind of again what he's building on this whole idea about don't receive the message of grace in vain If you start living a life of compromise then it's going to be a stumbling block to other people who look on your life. They're not going to get a good message of who Christ is. They're going to look at your inconsistent life. They're going to look at your bad testimony, and they're going to get a confused message of Christ. He says, in that sense, it'll be a stumbling block. Or if you live a life that represents Christ well and gives him glory. and Now look, I know we all have feet of clay. We're all going to make some mistakes. We're all going to stumble from time to time. But make it our objective that as far as it depends on us, make it our goal constantly that I want my life to be a stepping stone for people to come towards faith, to come towards God, and not to be something that would cause people to question God or to question the church because I'm living a life that is a poor reflection of both. Your life will either be a stumbling block or a stepping stone. It will either be a hindrance to people or a help to people in coming to faith. Now, it's not dependent on you, but it can be influenced by you, okay? It's always dependent on the Lord. Ultimately, when someone comes to faith, it's God's work in the heart of a person. But we have a role, and our role can either be to help someone come to faith or to hinder someone coming to faith based on whether or not we're living a life consistent and true to God, or inconsistent and hypocritical. So as far as Paul's ministry goes, he goes, we've put no stumbling block. You know, We've made no obstacle to other people. We've not been a hindrance to other people in coming to faith. He says, our ministry would otherwise be discredited But he says, we have a clear conscience here. He's going to add here, he's going to roll out his resume. He's going to say, basically, nothing about my life. That's basically what Paul is going to say. Nothing about my life or ministry was a stumbling block or a hindrance to other people. And here he goes, verse 4. He says, rather as servants of God, we commended ourselves in every way. All right, so he says here, we commended ourselves. In other words, we handled ourselves in a proper and in a godly way. And notice the rest of verse 4. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses. Please note his list because it is really easy to be a stepping stone for people when life is sweet. And when everything is going well. And life is firing on all the cylinders. Yeah, it's easy to be a good reflection of God and godliness and Christian values and biblical morals. But what happens when your life is distressed and falling apart and having difficulties? I love his challenge for us here because he says, we commended ourselves. You know, we handled ourselves well in every way in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses. Verse 5, in beatings. Because the Bible talks about many times where Paul went to different cities and he was sometimes well received. Other times people beat him and left him for dead. They didn't like what he was saying. They didn't like the message or the messenger. But he says, but we conducted ourselves well, even in beatings, imprisonments. There were times where Paul was thrown into prison. We conducted ourselves well in riots. There were different times when whole cities were in a riot over over the message of Paul. He says, we conducted ourselves well, even there in hard work. In sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness. How many of you have ever blown a witness just because you've been impatient? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're in such a fast-paced world that if things aren't fast, we grow impatient. And then in our impatience, we kind of say things and do things that we later regret. Paul says, handle myself well even in patience and kindness. He adds, in the Holy Spirit versus in the flesh. And in sincere love. In verse 7, he says, in truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Now, that's kind of an interesting phrase. What does he mean by that? It's really an allegory. He's not literally talking about weapons, but he means offensively and defensively. Left hand, right hand was typically shield and sword. So the shield was defensive. The sword was offensive. He says we conducted ourselves whether we were advancing the gospel, whether we were on the offensive, or whether we were protecting ourselves on the defensive because people were attacking us. So whether we were promoting the gospel or defending ourselves and defending our lives, we commend ourselves in every way. We handled ourselves well. He says in verse 8, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. You ever been ticked off when somebody's made a bad report or gossiped about you? Or they spread rumors about you? It's easy to lose your witness when some of that stuff goes around. It's just because you're mad and you want to defend yourself. Paul says, good report or bad report. I don't care what people say about me. I conducted myself in a way that is commendable. We handled ourselves well. I have a clear conscience about it. He says, yet regarded as imposters, verse 9, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. He says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Again, remember, First Corinthians was a corrective epistle, and because it was corrective and its tone was direct, Paul was criticized for it, and some in the church of Corinth wanted to discredit him and his ministry, and they rejected him as a bona fide apostle. And so he writes 2 Corinthians, and he says, look, here's what I've been through, here are my credentials, like it or not, you know, I've done my best before God, he called me, you are the testimonies and the fruit of my ministry, and he says here, but you've shown that you're not loving towards me because you've rejected my message of exhortation. You know, I've loved you with words that had to be direct. Sometimes the truth hurts, right? It's like, I've loved you by telling you the truth. So I write to you, he says here, like a father, like a spiritual dad to my kids here at the Corinthian church. I love you. He says, open wide your hearts to us also. Receive what I'm saying. Receive the truth because it's meant for you and it's good for you. And then he adds here in this closing passage, which is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time here. He says in verse 14, he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness, King James says lawlessness, have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, notice he's going to make some comparisons here between things that are, generally speaking, incompatible. So he starts off with believers and unbelievers. And we're going to talk about this because you might read this and think, wait a minute, as a believer, we live in a world of unbelievers. You know, what are we supposed to exit the world? I mean, you know, we're surrounded by unbelievers. How is it possible that we are not to be connected with them in some way? We're we're going to explain it. But he talks here in terms of righteousness and wickedness or lawlessness. So there's some incompatibility there. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? There's some incompatibility. There's, There's some opposites here. Verse 15, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial in Hebrew just literally translates wickedness, but in this context it's being used as a personification of Satan. So he's like, what fellowship uh, or what harmony is there between Christ and Satan? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And then he adds, for we are the temple of the living God. Now, it's interesting. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So in a singular sense, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. Now he's using it in a plural sense. We as the church are like the temple of God. That we are to represent his holiness. We are to represent his righteousness. We are to be a testimony in our world. So he says, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. It's a very relational statement there that God makes in scripture. Religion is man's attempt to get to God. But Christianity is different in that it is not religion. It is a relationship and it was God's endeavor to get to man. You see, that's a major difference. Religion always teaches, do what you can, strive how you can, become what you can to get to God. Christianity is the opposite. It's God condescending to us. It is God coming to us. It is God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's why it was paid in full on the cross. And that's why Jesus says in Aramaic, to meaning it is finished. Because that's what God did for us. God comes to us. God does for us. And then we respond. That's the beauty of the relationship. And so in here, Paul is is quoting Scripture, and it's actually kind of an amalgam of different verses between Leviticus and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but he's putting it all together. He says, God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is a relational God that he has with us. It was Mahatma Gandhi who said that God is that indefinable something that we uh, all feel but which we cannot know. All right, now listen to how impersonal that is. Gandhi says, God is that indefinable something that we all feel, but which we cannot know. Okay, but that is the futility of Hinduism, for example. And Gandhi is obviously the main uh, proponent of that. But Christianity is very different. God is not that indefinable something. God is that knowable one who is real and tangible and loving and Even took on flesh to be so tangible, to walk among us and to die for us. He is not that indefinable something that we all feel but which we cannot know. He is that definable one that we all feel and can know. And God is revealing himself to us. And God loves us and comes to earth and dies for our sins. And so Paul is letting us know, look, this is that one who says, I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. He says in verse 17, therefore, come out from them and be separate. Okay, that's, that is a call to us. Come out from them and be separate, touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I will be a father to you. I will be a father to you. A loving father. After one of our services a few weeks ago, there were a couple of Muslim men who were in our service, and I was glad that they were here. And I didn't know that they were here, but I met them after the service was over. It is one thing about Islam, they have a difficulty understanding God as Father. That seems too casual to call God, who is omnipotent and powerful, Father. That's too casual, but it's relational, is what it is. Again, it's an expression of his relationship with us. We had a good conversation. I mean, I didn't lead him to Christ out on the front sidewalk, but we had a good, rich dialogue. And they actually said to me before they left, we want to hear more from you about this. Which is interesting because that is exactly the same words that the men of the Areopagus said to Paul when he was sharing with them in Greece. It says at the end of Paul's teaching and Paul's sharing Christ with them, it says some believed and others said, we want to hear more from you about this. But God is our father. He is seen as a loving, genuine, doting dad. That's our father. And now I say this sometimes just as kind of a caveat because I've run into some people. I'm not personally one of these individuals, but I understand having talked to enough people over the years of ministry that the concept of God as your father is either a richly enlightening term because you had a wonderful relationship with an earthly dad, And so, therefore, you can connect with God as your father, as an earthly dad. But then here's the part that some of you have expressed and others of you have said, I have a hard time connecting with God as my father because I had a very bad relationship with my earthly dad. Or I didn't even know my earthly dad or my earthly dad abandoned me or or my earthly dad hurt me or whatever it might be. And so sometimes God as father can either be very enriching and endearing or it, it can be difficult for some of you. So I just want to say this, if you've had a wonderful earthly dad, that's great because then this can help you to understand the love of your father in heaven. If you didn't have a good earthly dad, you have one who is good and perfect in every way in heaven who loves you. You might have to have a fresh perspective of what the term father means. And that's okay, but seek the one who is perfect and loving and will never disappoint you and will never abandon you and will never hurt you and will never forsake you because that's our Father in heaven. And He is a Father to the fatherless. And He will always be there and always love us and always care for us. And so Paul quoting this, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Pentakrato is the word that is used there for Almighty. It is the only time it is used in the Bible outside of the book of Revelation. It is also used nine times in the book of Revelation. But otherwise, it's a word that means one who has in his hand everything. That is our Lord Almighty. Now, let's back up here at verse 14 and look at this last section because this whole part about not being yoked with unbelievers, this is a famous passage the warning about christians not dating non-christians all right this is that famous passage and so now some of you who are single and maybe you've heard this before you're thinking oh great you know here he's going to unload on us singles and tell us not to date non-christians and we've already heard this and can we move on and are you serious i'm I'm serious no yoke all right but I'm not going to just harp on people who are dating because it's much more than that in a word Those of you are taking notes. This passage of scripture has to do with influence This whole last section of chapter six has to do with influence. It's about guarding what influences you It's not talking about your influence to others. It's a warning, and it is a passage to all of us about guarding whatever influences us because all of us, I don't care what your marital status, this transcends that. All of us are influenced by something or someone. We can be influenced in a variety of ways. You can be influenced by people. You can be influenced by media. You can be influenced by the Internet, You can be influenced by substances. We use that terminology when someone is under the influence of alcohol. It's when something has taken over you. There's a positive, obviously a positive side to influence, but then there's also the negative side. There can be wrong people, wrong influences that we engage in or encounter that can be poor influences in our lives. And so this applies to various areas of life, including, but not limited to, who you date or marry, where you work, who you partner with in business, how or where you spend your leisure time. I mean, the list is endless. Start to think for just a moment about the different things that influence you. What are some of the things that have an impact on your life? Because everything that has the potential to influence us, we must be careful about.
1: Living in unity with one another is never an easy task. Every member of the church is unique and filled with personality. And with that comes opinions. As you've learned from the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, though, unity within the body of Christ is a must. You don't have to agree on every tiny detail, but on the basic tenets of faith. Members need to agree. Living in harmony does require humility and open communication and a willingness to follow the leadership God has placed over His church. We hope today's teaching on Cornerstone Connection has been encouraging to you. If you're in the area, we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday at 8.30, 10 or 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia for a time of worship and Bible study. You'll find more information at CornerstoneConnection.cc. Our website also houses our archive of Pastor Gary's teachings through the Bible, as well as additional resources to help you in your own study of the Word. You can even download our mobile app to take Cornerstone Connection with you on the go. You'll find all this again at CornerstoneConnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today. Pastor Gary has more to share from the book of 2 Corinthians, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not alone